many of you know, I've been preaching through John, the Gospel of John, but tonight I'm going to take a little detour, and we're going to speak from the book of Genesis. So if you have your Bibles, or you just want to use the screens above, feel free to do that. Um, chapter 32, we're going to look at verses 22 to 32. It's about... Jacob wrestling with God. Many of you are familiar with that passage. And I'd like to set the stage for my preaching tonight by reading a story from F.B. Meyer, which I believe is relevant to our text. And this is the story. A beekeeper told me a story of a hive. How, when the little bee is in the first stage, it is put into a hexagonal cell. And enough honey is stored there for its use until it reaches maturity. The honey is sealed with a capsule of wax, and when the tiny bee has fed itself on the honey and exhausted the supply, the time has come for it to emerge into open. But oh, the wrestle, the tussle, the straining to get through that wax. It is a straight gate for the bee, so straight that in the agony of exit, the bee rubs off the membrane that hit its wings, and on the other side, it is able to fly. And this relates to our text tonight very well, very well. Salvation, though it's a free gift, and it's purchased by Christ's atoning blood, is, not, is nonetheless granted to those who are made willing to strive for it. I want to just propose a question to you tonight, or a statement to you tonight, concerning our text, that God will initiate confrontation and wrestle with you in order to bring permanent change in your life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, God, that you, Lord, love us enough to bring struggle in our lives. And for the unbeliever, the struggle may lead to salvation. And for the believer, it's for the sanctification of his soul. God, open my mouth, open the hearts of all who hear this word tonight, in Christ's precious name. Let's read our text. Amen. Chapter 32, verses 22 to 32. The same day he arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his eleven children, and crossed the fort of Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream, and everything else that he had. And Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket. And Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. And then he said, let me go for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with man, and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, Please tell me your name. But he said, Why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name Peniel, saying, For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose upon him as he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. Therefore to this day the people of Israel do not eat the sinew 
of the thigh that is on the hip of the socket because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. <clears throat> One thing we must come to grips with as Christians is that although the Bible has different genres, different writing styles, for example, some of the Bible is poetic, Psalms, Ecclesiastics, Ecclesiastes, um, Song of Solomon, um, or prophetic, like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, and all the minor prophet books. Although it has different categories of literature, we must come to grips that the Bible is a historical book. The story we, we just read about Jacob wrestling with a man is real, true, historical event. It took place close to 4,000 years ago. It is not a fictitious story. It is real. And before we get into this text, we need to give some background on Jacob's life, the history of Jacob's life, and what brought him to this point of struggling or wrestling with the assailant. <clears throat> First, as many of you know that Jacob was one of the three, the three patriarchs of Israel. You have Abraham, you have Isaac, and you have Jacob. And starting with Abraham, God promised him in Genesis 12 that he would make him a great nation. That was the introduction covenant promise. He made a promise, a covenant promise to Abraham. The covenant promise, without going into all the details, because it's very detailed, was that Abraham was not only to be blessed by God, but to be a blessing to others by the coming of the Messiah through his descendants. <clears throat> now the covenant was actually made in Genesis 15, and then it was reaffirmed in chapter 17, and then in chapter 22. Then the promise was renewed with Isaac, chapter 26, and then it was renewed with Jacob in chapter 28. So the promise made to Abraham was passed down to Isaac and Jacob as well. It wasn't just to Abraham. And by passing Abraham and Isaac's life, let's talk a little bit about Jacob's life. <clears throat> Dictionary of Biblical Imagery describes the story of Jacob as richly human and the single richest repository of humor in the Bible. And if you read Jacob's life, you can't help but sometimes chuckle. He was very, him and his family were very dysfunctional, like a lot of families today. <clears throat> Jacob was born to Isaac and Rebekah. And Genesis 25 tells us that when Rebekah conceived, she was pregnant with twins and sensed a great struggle in her womb. And the Lord told her in Genesis 25, 23, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. Now, in patriarchal times, it was the firstborn who enjoyed all the privileges of the household of receiving the double portion of the inheritance of becoming the head of the household. <clears throat> that was the birthright. However, God in his divine, sovereign wisdom changes that order as one commentary wisely said, God deals justly with all, but has mercy on some. And from Jacob's mother's womb, the struggle began. The relationship between the twins in the next 11 chapters or so is mostly hostile. If you ever read Genesis, you know that. When they were born, Jacob came out holding Esau's heel. That is why he is named Jacob. And that word means heel catcher and carries the idea that he's a deceiver. To grasp someone's heel was apparently a figure of speech meaning to deceive. And to say the least, 
you see that deception that characterized Jacob's life. The first episode we see Jacob's deception in Genesis 25. Esau was a hunter and one day comes home from hunting and was very, very hungry and asked Jacob for some of the stew he was cooking. Jacob, the conniver, says, sell me your birthright and I'll give you some of this stew. And Esau did. And I like to say Esau was very stupid. <clears throat> the Bible in verse 34 says that Esau despised his birthright. And that's why in one commentator said he was very stupid. Esau did not appreciate that his birthright was special and linked to God's plan of redemption for the whole world. And that's why the writer of Hebrews calls Esau unholy, or some versions say profane or, or irreligious. Now, without excusing Jacob's dishonesty, because he was, at least he did have the farsightedness to value the inheritance. Another incident where Jacob deceives is found in 27. Isaac, his father, is old, just about blind, is near death, so he calls Esau to finally give him the blessing. And when Esau calls, when Isaac calls for Esau, Jacob says, here I am. He was deceiving his father, his own father. And because Isaac could not see, he assumed it was Esau. Isaac asked for something to eat. And by the way, Rebecca, Jacob's mother, was in on the deception also. So he asked to eat. And his mother prepares the food just the way Esau used to prepare for his father. And Jacob gives him the food and Isaac asks to feel him to see if it was really Esau. The mother puts um, uh, um, Esau's coat on him, which is a hairy coat that that Esau used to wear, and then put some goat hair on his hands. And when his father went to feel him, he said, ah, this is Esau, my son. And then he blessed Jacob. He blessed him. Moving forward, Esau comes home and finds out he has been outwitted again. Hatred now characterizes Esau. This is all important, building up to how Jacob got to the place where he was with wrestling with the Lord. Now he's determined, Esau's determined to kill his brother when his father dies. So Jacob gets wind of his brother's plan to kill him from his mother, and his mother sends him to his uncle Laban. He's running away from Esau now. On his way to Padan Aram, where his uncle lived, Jacob has his first encounter with God at Bethel. And God confirmed the covenant of promise, of the, the covenant of promise to him in Genesis 28. He arrives at his uncle Laban's place and meets his match, Uncle Laban. Another deceiver, another conniver, another manipulator. They're all over the place, even today. <laughs> and if I may say so, we all have a little bit of that in us. It's not just Jacob. It's not just Uncle Laban. He arrives at Uncle Laban's place and meets his match, Uncle Laban. And the sparks fly in the battle of wit. Jacob falls in love with Laban's daughter, Rachel. But Laban wants seven years of labor for her hand in marriage. However, Laban tricked Jacob into working for him for 14 years for his daughter Rachel's hand in marriage instead of the agreement of seven years. And after seven years, he gave his other daughter Leah who he didn't love. 
he tricked him into marrying his daughter Leah. Instead of Rachel, who the Bible says he loved. And his uncle Laban insisted that he work another seven years for Rachel's hand in marriage. So basically he tricked him to working for working 14 years of marriage for Rachel's hand. And without going into all the details because of lack of time, even though Laban treated Jacob unfairly, God sovereignly increased Jacob's prosperity and Laban's assets decreased. That was an act, a sovereign act of God. And with this increase of prosperity, as you might expect, Uncle Laban and his sons did not look favorably upon, upon Jacob. And because of this, Jacob has now two threats hanging over him. He has Esau and he has Uncle Laban. And until the direction, under the direction of the Lord, Jacob flees from Laban and he heads towards Canaan. Laban catches up with Jacob and after 20 years of pent-up anger, Jacob lays it on the line to his uncle. He has a conversation with him. And even though Laban claimed all Jacob had was his, Jacob gives the glory to God for his success. And they finally make a treaty and depart from each other. Jacob continues his journey to Canaan, and now with one crisis behind him, another crisis is before him. Esau, his brother, is coming to meet him. That's pretty scary for Esau, or I should say for Jacob. God prepares Jacob for meeting Esau by giving him a vision of angels. The presence of angels assured Jacob of God's approval of his return to Canaan and of his continued presence with him. In spite of the evidence of God's care for Jacob, Jacob was terrified by the news that Esau was coming to meet him with 400 men. 400 armed men. You could imagine the fear that was in Jacob's heart. And using his best judgment, Jacob sends uh, numerous presents ahead of his family and possessions to assure Esau of his desire to reconcile. But he stayed behind to think and pray concerning the outcome of such a potentially disastrous encounter. Now, fear of Esau and failure to trust in God for the outcome, I believe, led Jacob, the deceiver, to this point where he will meet and wrestle with God and his life will never, ever be the same. And this is where we'll pick up the continuing saga of, ja of Jacob's life. And there's two things you should learn from Jacob's life tonight. First one is you wrestle with God alone. You do wrestle with God and you will wrestle alone. Second thing is God initiates confrontation. He initiates it. Not like we hear a lot of the preaching today. That if confrontation or struggles come in your life, it's not of the Lord. Rebuke it. Do whatever you have to do. Get it out of your life. Have enough faith and get rid of it. No. You read the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. It's God. who He might use Satan. He might use the flesh. He might use the world. But it's God who initiates confrontation. We saw that when Brother Steve Langella spoke on Job. Who initiated that? It was God. Third thing is, through your struggle with God, through your struggle with God, He will transform you. Make no mistake about it, about that. That's the purpose of God when He brings confrontation in our lives. To glorify Him, but to bring transformation in your life. So Jacob, at this point, in Genesis 32, here's 
from some messengers that his brother Esau is coming to meet him, but he wasn't alone. He had 400 men. This suggests that Esau, at least in Jacob's heart, planned to attack, that he, it suggests that he planned to attack his brother Jacob. Jacob didn't think this was the welcoming committee. And Jacob, out of a fear, you know what he did? He divides his family and possessions into two camps, thinking if Esau and his men attack one, the other will escape. And then Jacob prayed, prompted by fear. He reminds God of his covenant promises, acknowledges his fear and anxieties and unworthiness. That's a good prayer. Even if it's prompted by fear, it's a good prayer. But Jacob is still trying to appease his brother, his brother's anger by his own efforts instead of waiting on God. <clears throat> what does he do? He said servants ahead of him with gifts to give to his brother Esau. And even though Jacob stole the birthright and received the blessing through deception and the blessing which meant that he was the head of the family, the birthright meant that he was going to receive a double portion of the of the father's inheritance. The, the blessing was that he was now the head of the family. And it was rightfully his. But he seemed willing to give it over back to his brother. Because of fear. He wanted to forfeit it. What Jacob doesn't realize is this is a spiritual battle. And not a physical battle. And one that he's not going to get victory over by his, his own efforts. But this is all going to change as Jacob is about to meet someone who is the transformer of men's hearts. But, with, but not without a great struggle. Verse 22 to 24, we'll read that again. It says, the same night he arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his eleven children across the fort of Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had. And Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of day. The first point is Jacob wrestled with God alone. And like I said, you will wrestle with God alone. And we will see how these points apply to us a little later on. Jacob, during the night, left camp, took his family across the Jabbok River, and he returned back to the camp alone. Sent his family on ahead, crossed the river, and he came back alone. Why Jacob crossed his family and possessions and then returned uh, alone? We, it's really uncertain why he did. Maybe he was a coward hiding behind his wives and possessions. Or one suggestion is that Jacob was anticipating um, an encounter with Esau. And so he began a night crossing of the river to establish his ground in the land. We don't know, but we, we do know this. Jacob was alone. And maybe, and I think this is a good reason that he maybe went back alone, it was fear of his brother that drove him to bring his family and possessions across the stream and go back to the camp and seek the Lord. Fear can drive you to seek the Lord. It can. And it's okay. You seek him alone also. Now the Jabbok River is a stream or a branch of the Jordan River. It's a little stream that goes right into the Jordan River. It's approximately 50 to 65 miles long. It's approximately 1,900 miles high. And it drops below, oh, maybe 115 feet below sea level. And as it drops, 
from 1900 feet, it cuts through these deep canyons and ravines. It's quite interesting, as well as beautiful. If you've ever seen the Grand Canyon, I've never been there, but I've seen pictures of it. But for those of, for those of you who have seen it, it's beautiful. These canyons with these little rivers and streams going through it. So in this deep canyon by the river, which is surrounded by hills, Jacob is there alone. Or at least he thinks he's alone. The second half of verse 24 says, And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of day. An unexpected and sudden appearance of an assailant. I can only imagine what that's like. And all of a sudden, you know, someone just, bam, appears. I remember one time I was fishing. I was in Staten Island. I was on Arden Avenue. I was all alone. And I had my waders on. It was pitch black. And I went, I was alone. And I walked down by the jetty. And the waves were crashing. And there was nobody around. It was very intimidating, to say the least. But I had to walk. I walked into part of the water to get a little past the jetty. And I took my first cast. And, I'm, and I'm, meantime, I'm looking around. I, I could have got killed. And nobody would have ever known. And, I, and I'm pulling the... the my lore in, and as it's coming in, and it was as scary as it was, it was very exciting. And as I'm pulling my lore in, I didn't know the striped bass, when I threw it all the way out, was following it in, because that's what they do. They want to make sure that this is a real deal. Following it, and as I was pulling the lore out of the water, the splash was so loud, and he grabbed it, and my pole went down, and you know, this is December, and I'm fishing in the pitch black, and the waves are crashing. The excitement and the adrenaline was just flowing, but I could almost understand—I could, I could almost understand how Jacob, at a, in, a, in pitch black in a canyon, when this assailant jumps out and begins to wrestle with him, that must have been a lot more scary than than my fishing experience. So he wasn't alone, and this man appeared and starts wrestling—a wrestling match—and they begin to wrestle. And they wrestle until dawn. Wrestling was a popular sport in the ancient world, especially of the Hellenistic civilization, where it was a major event at the Olympics. They had Olympics back then. And it involved two people into a hand-to-hand struggle. Wrestling then became a symbol back then for struggle. But who was Jacob wrestling with? He was wrestling with God. We know this from verse 30. And from Hosea 12, verse 4. Let's look at verse 31st in Genesis chapter 32. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. And then Hosea 12, 4. He strove with the angel and prevailed. He wept and sought in faith. Now the angel, a lot of times when, when, when the Bible in the Old Testament says the angel of the Lord, they're talking about God. So the man is identified as God. God has appeared to people in the Old Testament at various times. A good example is when God appeared to, in human form to Abraham in Genesis 18. These are called theophanies. This could very well be what the theologians call the Christophany. A pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ did not have a beginning. The birth of Jesus Christ on December, when we, well we don't know if it was December 25th, but we celebrate his birth on December 25th. 
That wasn't his, that was only when he took on human flesh. Jesus Christ was from all eternity. He is God, the second person of the Blessed Trinity. So, it more than likely was a Christophany or a Theophany that Jacob had an encounter with God himself. Now, I think it's worth mentioning that at this point, that Jacob was 97 years old. And while verse 24 says, a man wrestled with Jacob, I believe this was not a figure of speech or allegoric or symbolic, but it was a real and physical wrestling match. However, we should not think that this was the main point. It's not about Jacob wrestling with God and prevailing and getting what he wants. No, that's not the point. It would be ludicrous to also entertain the thought for one moment that Jacob could defeat God physically or spiritually. So why did God let Jacob prevail and grapple so long with him? Why? To see how badly Jacob wanted a blessing. Sometimes a boxer will go the full 15 rounds in the ring if he didn't get knocked out and will not give up even though he's pretty banged up. Why? Because he wants that title. He wants that title. Jacob demonstrated perseverance and tenacity. He wanted the blessing. So Jacob wrestled with God alone. The second point is God initiated the wrestling match with Jacob. And God, like as I said before, God will initiate confrontation in your life. And it's not a bad thing. People make it out to be a bad thing. It's a good thing actually. Even though it might be painful, it's a good thing. Verse 24 says, a man wrestled with Jacob. It was God who actually attacked Jacob. God actually attacked Jacob. We see similar initiated circumstances throughout the scripture. 2 Corinthians 12, verses 7 through 9. Paul was given a thorn in the flesh. By who? By God. Sent the messenger of Satan. Had a thorn in the flesh. We don't know exactly what that was. Some claim they do know what it was. I don't think that we can really know what it was. Well, maybe we could, but I haven't figured it out yet. But nonetheless, it was a painful thorn in the flesh. And then the psalmist in Psalm 119, 75 says, I know, O Lord, that your rules are righteous, and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. You have afflicted me. And then again in Isaiah 53.10, the prophet speaks of God the Father afflicting his son Jesus Christ, that it was his will to crush him. It was actually God's will to crush him. I like the book that John, Dr. John MacArthur has out. Who murdered Jesus? It was God the Father. That sounds like blasphemous to some of you, but... It was the Father's will to send him to earth, to take a coat of flesh, to die for the sins of the world. God afflicts his people, his elect, his church, yes, even his own son, for the purpose of redemption. He initiates it. And even though God initiated this confrontation, this struggle, this wrestling match, Jacob was persistent and did not give up, even though he was in a deep struggle which involved pain. What was his pain? God dislocated his lip, uh, his hip, and that, and that the assailant afflicted upon him because he saw that he could not overcome Jacob. And because he saw he did, could not overcome him, he dislocated his hip. But his pain went deeper than the physical. 
His pain was really more spiritual. And I believe Jacob, for the first time, realized his need for forgiveness, mercy, and grace that only God could give him. But he had to change. He had to change. Listen to verses 25 through 30. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket. And Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go, for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. And this is the third point. Through this struggle with God, Jacob was now transformed. Through your struggles with God, he will transform you. Jacob was now injured, and the man asked to be released. Why did the man ask to be released? Probably because he didn't want his identity to be revealed by the light of dawn. John Gill, the Baptist theologian, said, this was said that he might be seen, might seem to be a man that was desirous of going about his business as men do early in the morning. Though the true reason perhaps was that his form might not be more distinctly seen by Jacob and much less by any other person. But tenacious Jacob wouldn't let him go until he blessed him. Listen, nothing gives God greater pleasure than to see the hearts of his people firmly adhering to him. He wants you to hold on to him. We see this many times in the Bible. Jesus told of a persistent widow in Luke 18 who would not give up until the unjust judge gave her justice against her adversary. And the unjust judge gave her um, justice because of her persistence. Not because he was a just judge, not because he feared God, but because of her persistence. A few weeks ago, Pastor Brian, doing a series on the Lord's Prayer in Luke 11, spoke about ask, seek, and knock. This has to do with persistence. And the three Greek words are in the present tense and imperatives. Ask, it's a command. And it's in the present tense, meaning it's continuous. We are, to, we are commanded to ask and continue to ask. We are commanded to seek and continue to seek. We are commanded to knock and continue, and continue to knock. And going back to Jacob, the man then asked his name. Really, now, did God have to ask him his name? The omniscient God, the all-knowing God, did he have to ask his name? Doesn't that remind you of in the garden where Adam and Eve sinned and God was looking for them? Not that he didn't know where they were, but he wanted them to come out and Confess to them, to him. But Jacob, but he asked Jacob his name to show a contrast. It's important. You want to show him a contrast. In the Old Testament, your name was linked to your nature. By saying Jacob, he revealed his whole nature. The heel catcher and the deceiver. That's what his name meant. The heel catcher was caught and had to confess his true nature before he could be blessed. 
And when he confessed his name, God gave him a new name. You see, it was almost like repentance. He said, I'm a deceiver. I'm a heel catcher. I'm a deceiver. And then God gave him a new name, Israel. Jacob's struggle was spiritual as well as physical. And in it, Jacob prevailed. Not that Jacob defeated God. Once again, it would be ludicrous to think that. But that he finally attained God's requirement of yielded submission. Dramatically marked by his injured hip. And he persisted in refusing to let God go until he had blessed him. Then the Lord declared, Your name shall no longer be called Jacob the heel catcher, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with man and have prevailed. Now the Hebrew word for Israel is not perfectly clear. It's very difficult. But probably means he strives with God. And the alternate meaning is God strives. But the context makes this less likely. It's probably more he strives with God. It could also mean God fights. All of Jacob's life, he struggled with others, taking God's blessing from others for his own use, with his own strength. He was self-willed and too proud to let the blessing be given to him. But now he has a new name, a new testimony. He has a new direction. He now realizes the importance of being blessed by God. Jacob now enters the Patriarch's Hall of Fame. It's no longer the God of Abraham and Isaac. Now it's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And verse 30 says, So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. Bible scholar James E. Smith says, He named the spot of this heavenly encounter Peniel, face of God. He knew that he had come face to face with God on that long, lonely night. He lived to see a new day. Jacob had seen God, but his life has been spared. That sunrise was very special to him. It signaled the beginning of his walk with the Lord. And through his struggle, Jacob met God, and his transformed life is going to now affect others. Verse 31 and 32. The sun rose upon him as he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. First, I don't think Jacob literally saw God's face because when Moses asked to see God's glory in Exodus, he told him, you cannot see my face for men shall not see it and live. So I think it's probably a figure of speech for intimacy with God. Uh, second, I believe his transformed life affected others. The Hebrews, in, 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 in the author's own day, began to observe a dietary practice prohibiting against the eating of the tendon muscle. And by this op observation, they honored the Lord and their ancestors, Jacob. And their ancestor, I should say, singular. And, and, through, Jake, and, and through Jacob was born 12 sons, and these 12 sons became... Twelve tribes which became a nation, Israel. See, his life, his transformed life affected others beyond our comprehension. And out of that nation came the good news of Jesus Christ, of Jacob's descendant, Jesus Christ. Now some of you may think, but how does this apply to me today in the 21st century? I'm not a patriarch who wrestled with God. I'm not the father of 12 tribes 
God did not dislocate my hip. My name is still the same. How does this apply with me today? Though that's true, we are not patriarchs. We are not. We don't have dislocated hips. At least some of us. Some of us may have. Our names are still the same. So that's true. But all of humanity is very much like Jacob. We are sinful. We are egotistical. We are proud. We're deceivers. We're manipulators. And so on. To one degree or another. We also, like Jacob, have struggles in our lives. I would think anybody would say amen to that. So how does this apply to you? And first, I want to speak to you tonight who don't know God. Do you realize you're a sinner in need of a Savior? Do you realize, just like Jacob wrestled alone with God, you must make your peace with God alone. Nobody's going to do that for you. Again, like Jacob, you need to be persistent with God and not let go until you know you have peace, forgiveness, and mercy from God. And how do you do this? You repent of your sins. God may have to bring struggles in your life, deep struggles in your life, and give you a crippling spiritual blow so you genuinely turn from your sins and begin to lean on Him. Second thing is, you need to trust in the Savior. What He has done for you on the cross, that He paid the debt that you owe, He lived the life that you failed to live, and He will empower you to live for Him. If you do that, you will have peace with God. So you see, there is a bit of a struggle. Matter of fact, it's a great struggle. By the way, Jacob was heading towards Canaan, the promised land, but he could not enter, he could not enter that promised land until he was transformed. That's reminiscent of Jesus when he said, you must be born again to enter the kingdom of heaven. You, you, may, not get a good, uh, you may not get a new name, but you will be a new creation in Christ. You may walk with a limp the rest of your life, but each limping step will remind you of his amazing grace. And those of you who are believers, how does this apply to you? The Lord must on occasion cripple all of us when we become self-sufficient. And he must cripple us in order to bless us. Are you, as Proverbs 3, 5 says, are you trusting in the Lord with all your heart and leaning not on your own understanding? We come to points in our lives where sometimes we get a little complacent. And we become a little, we become a little, almost like we don't care. The Lord, because of his love towards us, is so great, he will bring a struggle into our lives. Because he wants us to be sanctified. He wants us to be set apart from the world. He wants us to be set apart to him. Whether you're a believer or not a believer who wants to become a believer, there will be a wrestling match. There will be a wrestling match. And by God's grace, you're going to win. I want to close with a scripture that, with a scripture verse and a quote from Charles Haddon Spurgeon concerning this verse. This is what Jesus said. Matthew 11, verse 12. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence. And the violent... Take it by force. And this is what Spurgeon said. But says one, 
Do you wish to understand that if a man is to be saved, he must use violence and vehement earnestness in order to obtain salvation? I do, most assuredly. Assuredly, this is the doctrine of the text. But says one, I, where God's Spirit is really striving with us, we shall begin to strive too. This is just a test whereby we may distinguish the men who have received the Spirit of God from those who have not received it. Those who have received the Spirit in verity and truth are violent men. They have a violent anxiety to be saved, and they violently strive that they may enter in at the straight gate. Well, they know that seeking to enter in is not enough, for many, for many shall seek to enter in, but shall not be able. And therefore, they do strive with might and main. The great preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones once was asked, What does a person look like who has truly met God? Alluding, and alluding to Genesis 32, 31, he replied, He walks with a limp. <laughs> Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you that when struggles come into our lives, when you confront us and you initiate these struggles, it's because of one thing, God. You love us. For those who don't know you, you want them to see them come into the kingdom of God. Violent, take it by force. For those of us who do know you, the struggles are so that we could become more and more dependent on you and less dependent on ourselves and others and things. You always have a great purpose of redemption with these struggles, Lord, and we're thankful for that. Help us to now embrace the struggles and not try to look for a way to get out of them, but to say, God, what are you doing in my life? What needs to be changed? Let it change. And we thank you, God, for your great love towards us. Because your love is truly amazing. In Christ's name.